We are in Matthew chapter 3. Your handout starts at the beginning of chapter 4. I didn't know if you had the old handout for chapter 3. A couple of you may not. Don't worry about it. We'll uh, go through. We've talked about baptism. We're going to specifically talk about Jesus' baptism um, and the preaching of John for a few verses. And then we'll get to Matthew 4 um, and the temptation of Jesus uh, probably in our second half today. So we're in Matthew 3. Verse 7. Why am I so confident about getting to chapter 4 if we're only in Matthew 3, 7? Maybe, maybe we won't. Well, if I shut up and talk, we'll get to go. But when he, this is John speaking. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Um, I kind of wonder about that. A, a Pharisee uh, who shares a faith in the triune God and the resurrection in the forgiveness of sins um, with some instruction as John was giving, I would baptize. Would you think you, John would just baptize any old Sadducee? A guy who rejects heaven? A guy who denies the existence of Satan? A guy who rejects the idea of, of hell or a judgment? A Sadducee would be a different story. And so uh, uh, John lays into them as they're coming. And offspring of vipers, where's the most famous viper or snake in the Bible? Garden of Eden. And so he's saying, you're children of the devil. It's, that's really a way of saying that. Um, deceitful, full of their own message, not full of the word of God. Um, and then he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath and... Um, it's a really a way of saying, do you really think you can escape the judgment? Um, who told you you could escape wrath by remaining unrepentant? Um, and who did tell them they could escape wrath without being repentant? I think the answer is the devil did. You know, so that's, that's their own opinion uh, fostered in their hearts by the devil by lifting up by opinion above the word of God which is always dangerous. Um, it is never a good idea. And we just remember that the devil is never your friend. I know that many other ministers will turn that around because scripture says the devil is the enemy. The enemy. I also want to just assert, though, that the devil is also never your friend. Because um, there are times when somebody might wonder, oh, is the devil helping me here? And the answer is never yes. The devil's, devil's never helping you. Um, if you think that through a certain sin, a little white lie or something, that the devil's giving you a way to get something, he's never being your friend when he does that. The devil is always your enemy. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, true repentance consists... Well, let's see if you listened last Sunday. True repentance re consists of two things. What are the two parts of repentance? Colleen? Sorrow over sin and trust. Yeah, it is. Luther sometimes would see, say fear and faith, but sorrow and trust. It's knowing my sin and knowing my Savior, um, trusting in my Savior. Many times when people of our fellowship struggle with repentance. I think it's over the second half. 
I'm so sorry for my sin. But Jesus died for me. Look at that cross you have hanging on your wall at home. Because probably yours is not like that one. How is your cross at home probably different from the one on the wall there? Probably without the body, right? That's technically a crucifix where Jesus is on the cross. The empty cross that most of us will have around the house reminds us that he's off the cross. The payment is finished. And therefore, uh, we have a Savior who's already atoned for our sin. Your sin is forgiven. You are at peace with God. I like the declarative sentence. Your sins are forgiven. You are at peace with God. Um, I like to hear that. I like to speak that. One of my favorite parts about worship is getting to say that to God's people because we need to hear that. I need to hear that. Um, again, though, fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, what is the fruit of a repentant heart? Um, if it's a cat burglar who stole the Mona Lisa and he is sorry about what he did and he comes to me and he says, Pastor Smith, I'm sorry I stole the Mona Lisa. Um, first of all, am I required by law to turn him in? No. Uh, and the reason is he's not threatening to harm his own life. If he threatens to harm his life, we have a different issue. But if he's just confessing a sin, just confessing a sin, um, uh, then no, I'm, I, that, that, that goes under confidentiality. But what might I suggest his fruit of repentance could be? Take it back, return it, or at least admit you have it so that a safe return can happen. Because if you go walking around the streets with the Mona Lisa, heading down to the, you know, to, to the art gallery where you took it from, it might be that somebody on the way takes it from you and then you haven't done what you meant to do. Um, however, fruits of repentance might be different in one person than in another person. So a strong Christian faith, I might anticipate that he would not only see to it that it got returned, but also confess it openly to the authorities. A weaker Christian might do something different, right? A weaker Christian might do what probably, not with regard to your faith, but what you're probably thinking of right now, a weaker Christian might do what? Return it. Well, I just said return it and confess it. But a weaker Christian might return it anonymously. You know, mail it. Or like, here, it's, I'll have it back, but I'm not going to, I don't want to get in trouble for it. Yeah, yeah. There was an incident years ago where um, a fairly typical, uh, uh, I, I talked to the catechism kids yesterday about um, something Luther said about the different decades of a person's life and the different sins that are different temptations for different decades. When a, a young person is in their late teens or 20s, sexual sins are often a, a, a burden or temptations. When a person gets into their 30s and they begin to have families, then often it's the temptation is, do I have enough money and therefore should I withhold something from God and keep something back? Um, that can last into your 40s, 
depending on how far the kids go with their schooling. Um, uh, but then when a, an individual is, say, in their 50s or 60s, temptations get different also, and it may not be about uh, uh, sexual temptations, or I'll call them, I'll just say miserly temptations. It's not exactly what I mean. But, they, the, but then an individual gets into different temptations with regard to inheritance. And a person, Luther says, can get judgmental about their children. I'm going to cut you out and things like that. Rather than take care of you and encourage you, I'll just be like the lawgiver with what I'm going to do. And in Luther's time, nobody lived beyond 60. So Luther doesn't talk about temptations for 70 and 80-year-olds. So uh, if you get there, you're on your own. According to Luther, he, he didn't, didn't think that would happen. Uh, but fruit and keep. So uh, getting back to another illustration I had, which is I, uh, years ago I had a young woman who was living with her boyfriend. And they repented and wanted to get married as quickly as feasibly possible and there was, uh, the only real issue was a delay with her place of residence because she had moved from a, from a different state. And in those days, there was a delay with, the, um, with uh, the courthouse in how quickly you could get your license. By the way, that delay is different now. Um, it, can, it used to be five days, and now it, it can be just three hours to march down and get your license. So in at least at least here, I, I don't know any differently, but at least here. Um, so they were trying to work this out and so forth. And I got a phone call from her mother from the state where she had grown up in. And her mother was furious with me because I didn't excommunicate her, her daughter. Because her mother had fallen into the same temptation as a young girl. And her pastor had excommunicated her. And now she thought, this isn't fair. You're not treating her the same way my pastor treated me. And uh, so I, I, had, I, I, I walked her through the doctrine of excommunication. And I, I, I just told her, by the way, pastors don't excommunicate. Churches do. The, the church does, not the minister. And she said, well, that's not what I was taught. And I thought, okay, we're in a different world now. And, uh, and she was going to report me to my district president. And I said, you know what, I'll, I can just call him here. I got a second line. And we can talk to him together right now. And she didn't want to do that. Um, but I knew that, I knew that at the time, the district president, this is two district presidents ago. So this is even before President Degner. So this is going back a ways. But um, I knew that he was perfectly fine with, with how I was handling this because I had spoken to him about it. And my circuit pastor knew, my associates knew, Pastor Henning knew, Pastor Sutton knew. And uh, I also told her that repentance is different with the different individuals. You know, your, your repentance then may have looked different than your daughter's repentance looks now, and they may not be identical. And, 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 and she also blew up about that and had a problem with that. I was really nervous about that mother showing up for the wedding. Um, <laughs> Our service, uh, at least in the red hymnal, does not have the line, uh, uh, if anyone has anything to say or you know, speak now or forever, that's not in the red hymnal. I haven't read the wedding service in the blue hymnal yet. We'll see if it's, but I was a little bit nervous about that with that individual. But, but you know, one, one individual's, I'll say stronger faith, might produce a different fruit of repentance than a different individual's 
a slightly weaker faith. Um, but the Lord is pleased with a sign, a fruit of repentance, whatever that fruit might be. In fact, we're told there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents and turns to God. So it, it might look different. Okay. And therefore, here in verse 8, if I go back to verse 7, the repentance of a Pharisee would likely look different than, a, than the repentance of a Sadducee. The repentance of the Sadducee would probably look a lot more like conversion. You know, that would be what I'm looking for, is simply conversion. The repentance of the Pharisee, I would be looking for something more specifically in the individual's life. So, um, there you are. Okay. Verse 9, do not think of saying to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, which must have been a common reply that John and others got when calling people to repentance. How dare you ask me for repentance? I'm of the people of Abraham. That's, that's the impression we get here. Uh, but John says, I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Now, um, Professor Franzman, uh, Warner Franzman, wrote a series of uh, commentaries for really for Sunday school teachers. On the new, that's just delightful. It's wonderful. And I had his brother for religion when I was in college. And um, he, uh, he points out with a very convincing argument to me that when he says stones here, he's talking about unbelieving hearts. That, like, for example, even from the Romans, who are, the Gentiles who are scattered among the crowd, I can also produce uh, 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 children for Abraham from these stony, unbelieving hearts. Could John have also been talking about the rocks laying on the, on the shore of the river? I, I kind of think maybe he could. Could have meant that. I think he probably means unbelieving hearts. But with all things, you know, uh, 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 God is able to do anything. So that's all I wanted to say about that. But I think that it's probably unrepentant hearts. And, and to just to realize that the only sin that damns is unbelief. The only thing that saves is what? Faith. Belief. Yeah, it, that, that's what it comes down to. Faith saves, unbelief damns. That's it. There are, all these other sins are either a sign of weakness, but still having faith, or they're a sign and evidence of unbelief, which condemns. So that's the issue. All right, verse 10. Already, John said, the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. I don't really want to go down a rabbit hole here, but... I don't like that spelling of axe. Did you learn a different one when you were a kid? I learned it with an E. Yeah. But then I still spell some words with an umlaut in English that, you know, then like fian I, I, I spell fiancé and fiancé, you know, with the accent on the correct E and stuff like that. But, uh, um, okay, I'll stop. Let's, let's just go on. All right. Already the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, divine judgment is inescapable. The axe is here. The fire is already roaring. So you 
leaders of Israel, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, you scribes, you teachers of the law, you chief priests, you Levites, you should be leading Israel's people. Who in all Israel should be producing good fruit? It should be Israel's spiritual leaders. But you're all barren, John is saying. You come to me for baptism just to find out if I'm going to make a mistake or what's going on. You're not coming here because of faith. You're like barren, unyielding trees. And in a couple of his parables, Jesus will, for example, that there's, well, there are a couple of them where Jesus is talking about like either a vine or a tree that's not producing fruit. One of them is the, the fig tree parable. And there it's the, it's the gardener who comes and intercedes. Let it go a fourth year to see, because it takes a while for a fig tree to bloom and everything. But let it go one more year and see. Otherwise, we can cut it down. But the, you know, it's just a waste of soil um, is how that parable goes. Well, here, if, if, if all of Israel's spiritual leaders are just a waste of soil, then God's about to move on. So repent. Now, I've, 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 I think I've split this verse up into three pieces, three slides, because there's so much to talk about here. I baptize you with water for repentance. So John's baptism, a baptism of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism. And then he says, but the one who comes after me is mightier than I. So, this was an enigma, a problem for the Jews. Because according to the Jews, when the, when the Jews talked about theology or religion, they, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that they played a game called the Back to Moses game. Uh, if we're talking about uh, a teacher, for example, one, uh, one guy might say, well, my teacher over here, uh, Hillel, said this. And then somebody else might say, well, okay, Hillel said that, but uh, 200 years ago, you know, Rabbi Yochanan or somebody said this, well, older rabbi um, is more important than the newer guy. That was their rule, okay? Which, didn't I just do that with you? I can say what I want, but Franzman said this, and I respect him, so I'm going to say what Franzman said. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a Pharisee, but... Uh, uh, an older guy does have a valuable um, uh, take on the Holy Scriptures. I respect um, him. But then they would say, but I'm going to go back to Malachi. Ooh, now I'm in the Scriptures, right? For them, Malachi was the newest of the Scriptures, but the Scriptures. But then somebody said, I know, okay, Malachi said that, but Isaiah says, and ooh, now we're going 300 years earlier than Malachi. And, but before Isaiah, Elisha the prophet said, oh, okay. But then if somebody can get a passage from Moses, they win the game. Because you don't get earlier than Moses. Oh, but Moses says, so Moses is it, right? So if you can get all the way back to Moses, you've won the, 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 the journey of the theological exercise, I'll say, the back to Moses game. But now John says the opposite. The one who comes after me, is mightier. How does that work? Well, John is saying Christ is divine. You can play your back to Moses game, but now we're talking about the Son of God, 
not about going back from Isaiah to Elijah to, to Moses, but this is the son of God here. Um, so it, it, the, the, the greater man will always be Christ. And John is acknowledging that. And then in the same verse now, he says, I am not worthy to carry his sandals. John was held as a prophet by everybody. John knew that he was a prophet. And here, what does he say? I'm not really worthy enough to even be the slave, the servant who carries around Jesus' shoes. You know, I, I can't even be that guy. Um, I'm not even the Lord's shoeshine boy. Um, whatever the Lord says and does, you listen to him. All I'm doing is saying he's on his way, but he's the one to listen to. Um, I don't know if I, if, if I know enough about slaves and servants in their culture to say more than that, but John certainly is, is putting himself into place compared to Christ here by saying, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. I don't know how, how we would put this today. I really don't. Because living in a culture that we have today, we have, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there is a class system still in the U.S. today, but I don't know if, it would, if, the, if, the, if the analogy would carry, so I'll just leave it as it is here. And then the third part of the verse, of verse we're still in verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism gave the forgiveness of sins. Christ's baptism Gave, the, gave and gives the forgiveness of sins. But there's something else coming. Jesus would baptize, giving the Holy Spirit. And um, I'll come back to the fire in a second, but the Holy Spirit was working in a limited way before Pentecost. But after Pentecost and since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives or bestows his gifts in all their fullness to the church. And you see that in the difference between, for example, the, the apostles prior to Pentecost and following Pentecost. You don't see Peter um, uh, healing people and raising people from the dead prior to Pentecost when he's still Jesus' disciple. But following Pentecost, all of the apostles, the 11, and then they choose the other guy to come in and join them because he was with Jesus the whole time too. All of them, and, they, and then they scatter to, to spread the church up, to, up in Armenia and, uh, and down in Egypt and over in India and, and across the way. And Paul ends up going among Gentile lands and, and somebody goes into Arabia. And, the disciples, and a couple stay in Jerusalem, especially Peter and John for a while. And the others kind of, somebody goes up to Antioch, maybe Matthew, and they all go all over the place. And Nioko, you had a comment? No, uh, it, that baptism also gave faith. We're not talking about, about faith, the beginning of things, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit that also follow after. The, the, the fuller gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for, for, for clarifying that. Yes, that's, that's what John is getting at here. And also, it's a re the, the reference to fire here, I think, also carries us to, into Pentecost. Because fire, on the one hand, means divine judgment or cleansing and purification. But also here, we have to put this, what John says, into the context of Pentecost to understand it fully. 
that at Pentecost, you had the symbol of fire, the tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles, and then their immediate spiritual gift, which was speaking in tongues, carrying the gospel to anyone who needed to hear it at the moment. Um, and, then, and then the spread of the gospel through their preaching after that. And Jesus' baptism and work does not separate these things, judgment, cleansing, purification, the giving of faith and the forgiveness of sins and the reminder of Pentecost. So Jesus' baptism isn't a, a separation of them, but it combines all of them and gives all of them. I want to move into verse 12 um, uh, before we pause for a second. So his winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There are two winnowing tools. There's a winnowing fork, which is the pitchfork. You grab it and throw it with. And the winnowing shovel from this verse is pretty clear what it does. What does it do? That's what you clean all the junk up with from, 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 the, from the floor. Clean out the threshing floor. Um, oh, yeah, when I got my new fridge yesterday, finally, after days of waiting, and they brought the second one because the first one was broken. Uh, sorry, too much information. Uh, but I cleaned the floor naturally where the old fridge had been, right? Yeah, so clean the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but burn up the chaff. So the wheat goes in and the chaff goes out. So this is clearly a judgment day picture. The wheat goes into the barn, that's heaven. The chaff is burned on quenchable fire, is, can only be a, a, an image of hell, the unquenchable fire. We are still in, in uh, Matthew 3, now moving into verse 13, um, and looking at the baptism of Jesus. But since we've already looked at baptism in general, uh, the baptism of Christ is especially notable for what happens right before it and right after it, more than for what's happening during it. But Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John at the Jordan. So John was baptizing at a place uh, that was evidently near Jerusalem. Um, maybe on, on uh, we're, we're often told it's on the other side of the Jordan, so across the ford, uh, somewhere over there. But the Jordan River, you know, is obviously north of the Dead Sea, and that's where John's baptized him. So Jesus comes from Galilee down down south to be baptized by John at the Jordan River. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And what John says here is not wrong. Uh, John already has said that Christ is superior. I'm, I'm not even worthy to, to carry around his shoes, um, uh, uh, or the British would have said his chafing dish. But uh, I, 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 and, and Jesus really acknowledges that he's right with what he says here in verse 15. Because Jesus answered him, let it be so now, because it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John let him. And notice that Jesus says, let it be so now. As if to say, another time, it would be wrong for you to baptize me. But right now, it's the right time for you to baptize me, so baptize me. Um, why now? Because Jesus was about to begin his ministry. So now is the time. Also, Jesus wanted to fulfill all righteousness, which means 
Jesus wanted to step up to you, to your side, as you were being baptized, and he gets baptized too. He takes up your cause, your account before God the Father, and Jesus then is going to see his work through to save you to the bitter end. That's what he's doing. His baptism begins it for you because you're baptized too and you are baptized into Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be baptized at all. He's the sinless son of God. But he's baptized and this is, if you want to think of it this way, this is when Jesus grabbed you to make you his own. So that at your baptism, that's Jesus grabbing you personally, making you his own. 16, after Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up out of the water. So Jesus comes up out of the water. Don't know how deep the water was at this point. Was Jesus immersed? Maybe. Was Jesus poured? Maybe. Did John take a handful of water and sprinkle it on Jesus' forehead? Maybe. I, I don't know. Did John use a seashell? I don't know. I don't, don't know. But he used water. The word baptized means apply water. And suddenly the heavens were opened for him. Uh, uh, what does that mean? The, the, the Bible talks about a third heaven, there being three heavens. The first heaven, we learned this in Genesis, is where the birds fly and the clouds soar. The second heaven is where the sun and the moon are and the stars. And the third heaven, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the third heaven is where God is. It's not outer space and it's not up in the sky. It's the third heaven. But here, the heavens were opened. So directly from heaven, from where God is, to earth, there is now, uh, as, you were, as it were, a door open. Um, as when my mother used to throw up the window to say, boys, supper's ready. You know, there's a direct communication now. Um, I don't have to just know it by instinct, but the voice is going to come from the parent to the child. Um, and, uh, and, the, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and landing on him. Is this the Spirit of Christ? No. Who is this? The Holy Spirit. There's no question. This is the Holy Spirit. When did the Holy Spirit last show up like a bird? When did the Holy Spirit hover and flap? Creation. Create, day two of, I mean, verse two of Genesis. It's creation, yeah. You've won the back to Moses game. Yeah, uh, it, it's creation. The, what was the Holy Spirit? Baruch Elohim merachefet al panei hamayim. The Spirit of God was hovering, flapping, fluttering. Over the surface, over the face of the of the of the, of the waters of the deep, um, why was the Holy Spirit doing that? He was participating in the creation. He was observing. He was a witness, so that when God said it is good, there was a witness to follow that judgment and say, "Yes, He's right. It is good." Two or three witnesses, in fact, right? And now. Something new is happening. The Spirit was hovering, watching, 
judging that things were good and right at the creation. Up to the crown of creation, which is man. Now, we're with this one man, we're going back to that moment where the man is entering into the world. And it is good. Where's that judgment? By what the Father says. Because now this voice comes out of the heavens, uh, throwing up the window sash, not to say supper's ready, but to say your salvation is ready. Here it comes. Um, all through the Old Testament, God the Father says, listen to me and to no other. Your idolatry to me, God says, is like adultery. And he is furious and enraged over anyone putting anything up as God, above God. And now what does that same father say? Well, now this is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. And in another gospel, listen to him. Also repeating that, at what moment later? Also when the glory of the Lord appears? Transfiguration. Repeating it at transfiguration. Listen to him. So, and Jesus then saying, this voice was not for me, it was for you. But this is my son, God the Father proclaiming the sonship, therefore the divinity of Christ. Um, not once in scripture, or in the days of the ancient Christian church, do we ever hear the Jews objecting to the doctrine of the Trinity? They have no trouble with it. Holy Spirit, yeah, he's there in the Old Testament. The Jews were perfectly fine with Christians talking about the Holy Spirit. Nobody questions it. And since God the Father is often called the Father in the Old Testament, the Jews were willing to accept that there would be a son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. They had no trouble with this. The trouble that they had was in Christ saying, I'm the Son. But not with the doctrine itself. Um, the Father, but here, the Father and the Spirit are here, and, and the Son is here. So just as the Trinity was present at the creation, the Father makes the spirit hovers, the son says. And here you have the same thing. The son, what? Drips? I don't know what action to give to the son here. He simply is standing there in the water. But the spirit once again hovers, once again hovers, and the father speaks. Listen to him. I am pleased with him. So, uh, the declaration that you hear in the creation story Um. God saw that it was good. There was evening and morning, the second day, the third day, it was good. The fourth day, the fifth day, it was good. The sixth day, the seventh day, it was very good. And here, I am well pleased with him. This man, my son, is very good. Oh, that everybody heard? Other times, people, God says, and people don't know what he said. So on the road to Damascus, the soldiers who were, or the, the, the unbelievers accompanying Paul, they thought that there was thunder. They didn't hear what God said. Um, and there are other cases like that where God says something and unless you're the one God was speaking to, you didn't, you don't, you're, it's like you've got cotton in your ears.
So did the Pharisees and Sadducees hear all of this or not? John did. That's what matters, is that God says it to John, um, and then the gospel writers say it to us. So did some of John's disciples hear this as well? I think probably yes. For one thing, some of John's followers became Jesus' disciples, and one of them was the apostle John. So um, did, uh, did they hear this as well? So, Could it be that some of the Pharisees who were there did believe? Could uh, Joseph of Arimathea have been there? He was a Pharisee, and he was in the Sanhedrin. Could Nicodemus have been around and heard, or at least heard about this? And later on, he's curious about Jesus and comes to faith in Jesus. So in some cases, maybe, yeah. We're not really told about the after effects here. We're more told about Matthew wants to tell us what's going on and, uh, and more concerned about presenting Christ than about saying what happened to the, to the forgive me, the riffraff on the banks because that's, that's, that's where I would have been, you know, the riffraff on the banks. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.